following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let us turn to the book of 2 Corinthians, the last verse of 2 Corinthians 3, and then reading the first six verses of 2 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 3 at verse 17. Actually, we'll read the final two verses of chapter 3, thinking this morning about Christ's glory. He came as a baby, and now thinking about the glory of Christ, chapter 3 concludes with a discussion and exposition of the glory of the old covenant, which was fading compared to the glory of the new covenant inaugurated in Christ and the greater glory of Christ. So let's pick up with verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to your word, that in a deeper way we would understand this truth about the glory of Jesus Christ, revealed in the flesh, and now in some real sense, coming to our own hearts and minds and lives, that we would see him with the eye of faith. Give us your help as we seek to understand your word by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. In the summer of 1872, 13-year-old Teddy Roosevelt acquired his first gun. In his later description of it, he says it was a breech-loading pinfire, double hyphen, barrel of French manufacture. I'm not sure what all that means, but that was the gun. That summer, often hunting for small game and birds with his friends, Teddy Roosevelt found himself utterly bewildered that he could not seem to hit anything. His friends would even use his own gun to fire into the blue 
blur for him of the sky or the green blur of the trees, and seemingly out of nowhere, specimens of game would fall to the ground. The truth was slow to dawn on him. Here's his own account of the moment of realization in his life that summer. One day, his friends, he says, one day they read aloud an advertisement in huge letters on a distant billboard. And then I realized that something was the matter, for not only was I unable to read the sign, but I could not even see the letters. I spoke to this to my father, and soon afterwards got my first pair of spectacles, which literally opened an entirely new world to me. I had no idea how beautiful the world was until I got those spectacles. While much of my clumsiness and awkwardness was doubtless due to general characteristics, a good deal of it was due to the fact that I could not see, and yet was wholly ignorant that I was not seeing. It's pretty hard in our modern day and age to think that a child could almost be 14 years old and suddenly find that out. Here he was. Neither he nor his parents had realized that, as the doctor discovered, he was severely myopic. He could barely see anything without his glasses. And he had somehow gotten to that point in life without finding it out. Roosevelt's biographers tell us that it's almost impossible to overestimate the importance of this event in the summer of 1872 for the young man. It changed his life dramatically. With glasses, his world suddenly leaped into pristine focus. He would wear those pinched nose spectacles the rest of his life, enduring the mockery and scorn of being called four eyes. But he wore them because he was once practically blind. He just didn't know it, but now he could see. This morning, I want us to consider that Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh, is the revelation of God's glory. And apart from God's grace, each one of us was at one time completely blind to the glory of Christ. Blind like Teddy Roosevelt, and we didn't even know it. But conversion, coming to trust in Jesus Christ, involves having our eyes opened to who Jesus Christ really is, that he is truly God and truly man, the Savior of the world, and having our eyes opened to what he actually did in coming to earth. He lived and died and rose again to reconcile us to the Father. And then living the Christian life means more and more seeing with the eye of faith the glory and the beautiness and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in all of our lives, seeing and trusting and glorying in him and in his cross that paid for our sins. And that's actually how we fight sin and temptation in our lives, and we grow in holiness, and we become more like Jesus. Consider first with me this morning from our text, Jesus Christ reveals the glory of God. Jesus supremely reveals the glory of God. Here in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul has been explaining that the old covenant was glorious. It wasn't bad. It wasn't wrong. It just wasn't sufficient. The Mosaic covenant came with glory. In verse 
7, he says, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, and that's referring to Moses and the Ten Commandments, if the ministry of death, in other words, that the commandments just exaggerated and shone a light on our sin. If this ministry of the old covenant came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end. So Paul's alluding to when Moses came down from the mountain and he veiled his face because his face shone with glory and he didn't want to see his fellow Israelites see that the glory was going to fade. And Paul says, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministration of condemnation, again, the Mosaic Covenant, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Verse 11, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. He's using this word glory over and over again, and he's saying, yes, there was glory in that covenantal dispensation of God, but with the inauguration and the full scope and beauty of Christ coming, there is even more glory. Jesus comes and reveals the glory of God in a way never before seen in history. If you stop and think about that, you know that there are many ways that we see Glory, even the glory of God revealed in this earth. We especially see it in creation. If somebody goes to the Grand Canyon, maybe they've seen pictures of it and seen it on television their whole life, and they go there, and they come back and they say, you you just don't believe it till you see it. It's so glorious, and words fail, because if you're standing there on the, on the rim at sunset and seeing all the light shine and its beauty on the canyon walls, There's nothing like being there. Or maybe in a bright and dazzling snowfall like last year, which we hope this winter is not like last. You know, we'll pass up the beauty of that. But with all the snow covering the trees and ice shimmering, our pine trees were just weighed down to the earth. But it was beautiful. It was glorious, we would say. Or maybe a beautiful sunrise over the ocean. But all those pictures of glory in creation are completely surpassed by the the glory of Jesus Christ revealing God in who he is. Or you might see the glory of God revealed in human beings, some great athlete, and you see him run, and you see him catch that pass in the end zone, just perfect specimen of of physical prowess. You say, that's glorious, especially if it's your team, right? Or a brilliant mind, somebody who is just so gifted intellectually and Maybe in a musician who plays with such beauty and vigor, you say that there's glory in that. And there is, because humans are created in the image of God, even though it's marred. All those are pictures of glory to some extent. But Hebrews 1.3 says that the sun is the radiance of the, of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And in fact, that's what Christmas is all about. The glory of Christ being revealed. In John chapter 1, those familiar words, the apostle says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is speaking as one of the apostles, and he says, We, we apostles, we were eyewitnesses of his glory. We have seen his glory, the one and only of the Father, Jesus in his person, 
in his character, in his love and compassion, in his holiness, in his zeal for the Father's will, in his death and resurrection, the person and work of Jesus Christ in a way that had been unsurpassed until that time, show the glory of God. In fact, in the Gospel of John, John goes on to speak about Jesus in his life, revealing the glory of God in the first miracle that Jesus performs in John chapter 2, the wedding of Cana. There we find, after he does it, in verse 11, John comments on it and says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And listen how John describes it. And manifested his glory. His disciples believed in him. This miracle of turning water into wine was a manifestation of Jesus' glory. And his disciples put their faith in him. Or later on in John chapter 11, when Lazarus is about to be raised from the dead and then is raised from the dead, at the beginning of chapter 11 and verse 4, when Jesus heard it, he said, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he said, this illness does not lead to death It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. We're just not used to thinking in these terms that Jesus speaks in, that Jesus was glorified. The glory of Jesus was revealed in these things when he raised him from the dead. And later on in verse 40 of that text, it says, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? There's going to be a shining forth of the glory of God when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And the one who was dead for four days comes out of the grave, shows the glory of God. But the glory of God was supremely revealed in Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead. In fact, in John chapter 12 at verse 23, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's speaking about his death, his cross. The supreme revelation of the glory of God is Jesus Christ lifted up on the cross for our sins and then rising from the dead. Think of it. We all just experienced Christmas. Some of us maybe are feeling like, okay, I made it through. It's another whole year to all that work. The kids don't even realize that. For them, it's just great fun, right? Don't you wish you could go back to childhood and just experience it that way again, at least if you had a good experience of it. But probably everyone in this room gave and received at least a gift or two. And you probably observed at least some kind of Christmas tradition, a special meal, special food. Probably a lot of us are saying, okay, time to stop eating that food. Maybe a party, visiting with family and friends, all kinds of typical celebrations. And there's nothing wrong with that. But do you really grasp that Jesus came as a baby to go to the cross and to fully reveal the glory of God, the very nature of God? And if you are not seeing and understanding the glory of Christ, then you really know nothing about the meaning of what Christmas should be all about. It's like you're having lunch with the president, but all you think about is what's on the menu and the food on your plate. And you think nothing about the person that you're with. Jesus Christ supremely reveals the glory of God. Secondly, seeing the glory of Jesus Christ is at the heart of becoming a Christian. 
Conversion means seeing the glory of Christ in a new way that you've never seen before. In chapter 4, we move into this, and Paul is talking about unbelievers having their minds veiled to the glory of God. And then in verse 6, he concludes that section by saying, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, a reference to the creation act of God, that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's how conversion is described here. Scripture describes conversion elsewhere in terms of faith and repentance and the new birth being born from above. But here, it's described in terms of having our minds unveiled and finally seeing in a new way the glory of Jesus Christ. We don't normally speak of conversion in these terms. Conversion is coming to truly see with the eye of your heart that Jesus is the divine Son of God. John and the other apostles saw the glory of Jesus Christ. This was part of their conversion experience. During Jesus' earthly ministry and life, there is a sense in which the divine glory of God was hidden. Here he was. If you grew up with him in the dusty streets of Nazareth, you would have thought that he was another ordinary boy. Maybe you would have thought there was something a little bit different about him. He didn't seem to do anything wrong. But that maybe wasn't too obvious, but the divine glory was hidden. It wasn't perceived by everyone. And so he could go back as, as a man during his ministry and preach in his hometown, and, and they don't receive him, and they just mock and scorn him. You have to have your mind open or enlightened by the Holy Spirit to see the divine glory. There's coming a day when he will come again, and his glory will be evident to everyone, even those who don't believe in him. But at this point, John, the Apostle John, is saying, we saw his glory. And Jesus, in his life, repeatedly warned about the danger of spiritual blindness. And he he would say things like, seeing they do not see. As he taught, as he did his amazing signs, he was saying that they see with the eye of sight, but they don't see. They're blind. And the problem is not with Jesus and his clear revelation of God's glory. No, the problem is with all of our hearts. Naturally, we do not see. And and the problem is we are idolaters fundamentally apart from grace. Psalm 135 speaks about the nature of idolatry and idols. And whether it's Old Testament idolatry or modern 20th century idolatry, the nature of idolatry is mocked in that psalm. And it says, idols have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, they do not hear. And it says this, those who make them become like them. To whatever idolatry you give yourself, you end up being like that idol that you give yourself to. And just like idols are dumb, idolatries don't really satisfy. They aren't the way to life. When we go that pathway... We become like them. We become blind to some degree. And it says, so do all who trust in them. The point is, the things that we desire, the things that hold our highest affection, these become our idols, and these idols blind us to the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why the religious establishment of Jesus' time couldn't see it. 
They were blind to who Jesus Christ was. So conversion is really the gift of spiritual sight from God so that we, for the first time, truly see who Jesus Christ is. He is Lord of all. He is Savior of the world. He is the glorious Son of God. His cross and resurrection give forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all who will trust in him. And so we see him, and in seeing him, we trust him, and we love him, and we submit our lives to him. I think of Paul writing this about the light of God shining in his heart. And you think of the light of God literally for him on the Damascus Road. He's thrown off his horse and the light of God shines on him and he hears a voice and everyone around him is blinded by the light and the risen Lord appears to him. And up till that point, think of it, the apostle Paul before that saw knew something about Jesus Christ. Jerusalem was filled with controversy about who was this man. But until that moment, Saul, to become Paul, would not see anything of it until his eyes are opened. And then conversion brought to him a whole different view. And that's the experience of every Christian. Maybe it's not as dramatic if you really were taught Jesus Christ from a young age and your eyes were opened at age five or age six, but nevertheless still true. And I ask you, have you ever had the experience of seeing something for years and then coming to see it in a whole new way? Has that happened to you with Jesus Christ? You think of Ebenezer Scrooge and the familiar Christmas carol story of Dickens, and you think of Ebenezer Scrooge going about his job and his work, and we all know that Scrooge was blinded by the love of money. That's all he could think about. He didn't get married years before because of that, as the story unfolds, and he can see nothing of the ordinary joys of relationships, of having family and friends, and spending time with others, and serving others. No, it's just all consumed by the love of money. And then that familiar Christmas Eve event takes place. The spirits visit him and he wakes up the next day and we all know he's got a whole new perspective. His mindset is different. He sees things he didn't see before. Or maybe some of you have watched the movie Anne of Green Gables and Anne grows up going to school with her school chum Gilbert Blythe. Gilbert Blythe is a really nice young man. Whenever we watch that movie, we always rooted for Gilbert. You know, he's just a good kind of guy. But Anne only sees him as a friend. And it takes years. She has to go away and have other experiences and teach school far away for a while. And then she goes through a fundamental change in how she sees Gilbert Blythe. I won't give away the end of the story in case you didn't see that, but it's a fundamental change. Maybe we could compare it to a child practicing an instrument. Maybe one of you kids are here and your mom tells you to practice piano. I had to practice piano every day after school for a half hour before I could play. My friends would be waiting outside. I'd be in there playing the piano. And every year, Mom, can I quit piano now? Please, please. You know, and finally after sixth grade, she relented. Mom and Dad let me quit. And I wish I wouldn't have quit because in college I started to take piano again, and then I enjoyed it. And maybe some of you have had that experience that at some point you're practicing your instrument and you begin to love it. And as you grow to adulthood, it's a great joy. You see it in a whole new way. The idolatries we have are 
over-desires blind us to Jesus Christ. And maybe for you it's a desire for success or appreciation or being accepted by your peers or respect or power or sex or control or your appearance or fitting in or money. It's interesting that in Hollywood... You read articles about what really motivates the Hollywood elite about the movies that they make. It's actually not money. You would think that money would be the fundamental bottom line. But they can make movies that don't make a profit because the primary motivation typically is the esteem of their peers in Hollywood. And and that even outweighs having a profitable bottom line so that they might make a family movie and make a lot of money from that, but they don't do that. Instead, they make this controversial movie that's not going to sell, but their peers will give them accolades. I think that's an interesting thing. Have you come to see the glory of Jesus Christ? Louis Zamperini was a World War II hero who died in July of this year at the age of 97. Many of you know the story now because the book Unbroken by Lauren Hillenbrand is the story of his World War II experience and his life. And Angelina Jolie directed the movie about that book. And that book has stayed at the top of the New York Times bestseller list for four years now. And Zamperini experienced World War II. This Olympic athlete from California entered World War II, was shot down over the Pacific, and endured 47 days on the open sea in shark-infested water, an incredible story of survival. And then he's rescued by the enemy and experiences two years of torture in a prisoner of war camp. And after that, the war ends, he's released, and his life goes downhill even more. He returns to his wife and family, but he's suffering what we would now call post-traumatic stress, He turns to alcohol. His life is going down the drain. And in 1949, he and his wife reluctantly agree to go to a Billy Graham rally in Los Angeles. And he hears the gospel. And they return the next night. And he's given eyes to see the glory of Christ. Up until that time, he was consumed by bitterness and unforgiveness, and he dreamed and planned about going back to Japan and killing the bird, as his prime tormentor was called. And now, through Jesus Christ, his heart is radically changed and given a new direction. And now he's able to forgive. And unfortunately, that part, what he says, is the most important day of my life. The movie does not include that in a clear way. But for him, the most important day was not his release from earthly captivity. It was the day that his eyes were open to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Conversion is a new sight of the glory of God in Christ. Thirdly, our final point is that continuing to see Jesus Christ is how we grow in the Christian life. It's not just that we see Jesus Christ when we come to him in faith for the first time, but Christian growth in holiness and godliness and in Christ-likeness is 
One of the primary avenues of that is seeing the glory of Jesus Christ in faith and love and trust in him. And the last verse of chapter 3 is about that, where Paul says, And we all, Christians, with unveiled face, now our faces don't have a veil on them anymore. Our eyes aren't blind. Beholding, and that word has the sense both beholding and reflecting. Your translation may say reflecting. That's because the word has both those senses to it. But I think beholding is the best translation here because as we behold the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What a beautiful description of what what we would call sanctification, Christian growth is all about. It's from glory to glory. It's incremental. We grow in reflecting the glory of the Lord as we behold the glory of the Lord by the power of the Spirit. What a great summary. One of the central elements to our transformation is beholding Jesus daily with the eye of faith. And you think of the end of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, when he's praying for his disciples and he's praying for those who will believe on him through them. So he's praying for all of us. And he concludes the prayer with the words that they would see his glory. Do you ever stop to think, why is he praying about his disciples seeing his glory? Piper answers it this way. He says, the answer is not hard. This satisfy our hearts and glorify his worth. That is what it means to be loved by Christ. He prays for what is eternally satisfying to us and eternally glorifying to him. Seeing his glory forever is the greatest gift he can give to us. Think of that. What's the greatest gift Jesus can give you this year? It's a greater spiritual sight of his glory. Therefore, praying and dying that we might have this gift is love. That's Christ's love for us. Resolving to fight with all our might that we might see what he died to show, this is a great honor to Christ. Jonathan Edwards says that this seeing of Jesus with the eyes of the heart is a spiritual perception of Jesus' truth and his beauty and his worth for what they really are. He says it's a true sense of the divine excellency of the things revealed in the word of God. It's a conviction of the truth and reality of these things. You're going to be given a handout as you walk out the door this morning. That's the Bible reading plan that you might want to use for the year to read the word of God every day. Not that you have to get through the Bible in a year. It's more important that you reflect on what you read. And Jonathan Edwards is saying As we read the word of God, the spirit enables us and helps us to have a sense, a conviction of the excellency of Christ. The Bible from beginning to end reveals the glory of Christ. In other words, it's more than a mere rational belief or an intellectual agreement to certain things. Edward says it's a sense, it's a conviction of the gloriousness of Jesus on our hearts We have to fight for this by faith. We have to ask God to give it to us anew because our hearts tend to be dull to it. And this spiritual perception is always linked to active trust in Jesus Christ for what's going on in your life right now and active love to him and submission to his will. Do you see how that 
enlarges and changes how we look at sanctification and the temptations that we face week in and week out. Transformation does not occur without beholding Jesus, without seeing him afresh with the eye of faith and calling on him and believing the promises of his word for his presence and his health. Some of you this morning may be struggling deeply like Louis Zamperini with the calling of God to forgive someone in your life. Someone who maybe deeply betrayed you, deeply hurt you. And maybe there's not even any repentance that you see, but you're called to heart forgiveness like Zamperini was called to that. And that really means that you need a deeper vision not an ecstatic vision of some kind that literally you see something like an Old Testament prophet would, but that with the enablement of the Spirit, you see Jesus Christ clearer, and you're able to more deeply forgive someone. Or maybe you need a greater vision of Christ to fight some besetting sin in your life and to take a stand against it, to go confess it to someone who will pray for you and stand with you. Or maybe there's some great suffering, some chronic condition or thing that's going on in your life this year, and you need the persevering grace of God. But that only comes with a greater vision, a greater sight of Jesus and who he is. Growth comes by gazing at the glory of Christ. To love your husband or your wife, to obey your parents, to love those who are difficult to love, to put aside temptation and put aside pride and lust and envy and self-seeking. None of this changes truly and deeply without seeing Jesus Christ. I hope that this verse shows that to you. As he is revealed in the word of God and the Bible speaks to us, and as you hear it, preached and taught, and as you read it and submit your life to it, the Holy Spirit opens your eyes more and more, day in and day out, to the glory of Christ. That's how we come to Christ, and that's how we grow in Christ. Isn't it interesting in Philippians chapter 2, when Paul calls the Christians at Philippi to true sacrificial love, and you think of what he calls us to, it says, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's talking about the church where there's often division and strife. I've been in almost every church of our presbytery at some time or another to kind of mediate church disputes. So this is a high calling that Paul is calling the church to. It applies to our families and our friendships, our relationships. And he says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do you realize how unnatural that is to the natural mind? I watched, we had the light family Christmas at our house yesterday with 21 of us there celebrating a brunch and our two youngest grandsons were there. They're both about one year old, you know, tugging over toys and like, "Mm, mm." they can't even talk yet, but... They didn't really fight, but they didn't, you know, give toys to one another and say, here, you first. No. Um, And, you know, how unnatural it is to us. We grow up. We don't need to be taught selfishness. But in this very context that Paul speaks about this self-giving nature we're called to, what does he do? In verse 5, 
He points us to the mind of Christ. And then there's this beautiful hymn to Christ that was probably a hymn of the early church. Though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And Paul talks about how he went the whole way to death on a cross. Right there in the context of a call to self-sacrifice and service and giving of ourselves and considering others more important, he puts this vision of the glory of Christ, what Jesus Christ came to reveal, that he died and rose again, that he might transform us into his likeness. And for us, that's a daily fight of faith while the world around us and our own remaining sin lures us to every other idolatry under the sun. And that battle is not going to end until glory, until you see Jesus face to face. Teddy Roosevelt began really seeing at age 13, and his life was never the same. You wonder if he would ever have become president without that experience. He certainly would never have written some of the most wonderful and descriptive narrative of his adventures in the badlands of the Dakota Territory at the time. He might never have really seen Yellowstone National Park and began the process of designating national parks like Yellowstone, which we all know he did. It was a seminal moment of his life. Christians are sinners who have had their eyes open to see the beauty and the sin-bearing Christ, grace of Jesus Christ. And because of it, their lives will never be the same, just like Louis Zamperini. Yes, we still struggle. We still sin. We still grow weary in suffering. But we are satisfied with seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that highest joy is ever at the center of our being because we have seen the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we hear your word speaking to us. If in our hearts we have come to know Christ, it is our deepest longing to know you better, to know the love of Jesus Christ poured out into our hearts by the Spirit. We know this is what we need every day. Give us this in a more powerful way. Help us not to be satisfied with something less. Help us resolve anew by the power of the Spirit to seek you, to know you. Whatever our walk, whatever our circumstances might, might be like this week, this year, help this thought to abide in our minds that we would behold the glory of Jesus Christ and be changed by it, even from glory to glory. Till that day that we hear him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.